so we're in uh, Genesis, and we're going to be going through chapter 3, which we've been in, uh, verses 6 through 15. If you need a Bible, James will grab you a Bible. Otherwise, open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, 6 through 15. Let's, uh, if you guys would, stand with me as we read the living word. Genesis 3, 6 through 15. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I hear your voice in the garden. I was afraid. I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree, which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave uh, you gave to be with me. She gave me the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And verse 15 and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So let's pray before we dive into this. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. And Lord, whether it's been a good day, whether it's been kind of a neutral day or a bad day. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that we have life. Lord, we thank you for your living word that you reveal yourself to us through it. And as we open up together as a family and as we study as a family, would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our ears to hear? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Um, and would you soften all of our hearts that the seed that gets planted today from your living word would take root in our lives and, and cause change in our life, that we would leave here knowing you more and in knowing you more, knowing ourselves better and being empowered through you, Holy Spirit, to change our community uh, to change our families, to change our neighborhoods, to change the world around us for your kingdom. So that's you would be here and you would empower all of us this evening for what you have planned for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a seat. All right, so starting in, we're just going to go through this. I have a lot to cover tonight, but I think we're going to get through it. Um, so we're just going to start going through verse by verse, starting with chapter six. And remember what we, uh, we came off last week was um, we had the introduction of the, this new character, the serpent. And the serpent comes into, into the picture and he's crafty and he's deceiving the woman. He's playing these games where he's exaggerating what's, what God is saying to Eve. And he's trying to paint this picture and get Eve to, uh, you remember the kind of one of the themes we had last week was he was using exaggeration to try to get Eve 
to stop thinking of God as this merciful, loving provider, good God, and to get her focus on the only, the one thing that he said she couldn't have. And he's shifting her, her view from a loving provider to a, um, a domineering ruler who's cruel, who wants to keep things from her. And it's literally centered around the one thing that he says not to take of and everything else is theirs. Um, and so he's got her focus. And so then we come into here, which this is the verse where she takes of the food. So verse uh, six says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, these are three characteristics right off the bat that we see um, about the tree that she saw it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave to her, her husband with her and he ate. So it's, it's obvious from the text here that, these three characteristics that it was good for food. It was, it was pleasant to the eyes, but the main characteristic that we see about this tree, that was the driving factor in Eve partaking of it was that it was desirable to make one wise. And this is the essence of um, coveting right here. This is that same idea of um, where we talked about it last week to where we can have everything in the world. God has given us so many blessings and we fall for the lie that that one thing that he says to stay away from, that that's the thing that's going to bring us happiness. And so we go after that one thing that's going to bring us happiness. And he hasn't said to not partake in whatever that sin may be because he's cruel, but because he knows we are not wired to handle it. It goes against his nature and therefore he knows it's going to be harmful to us. And we bypass all the blessings that he's given us. We pursue the, the very few things that he's said to stay away from for our own good, make ourselves Lord run after those things. And immediately we, we find the consequences, right? When we run into sin, no matter what the sin may be is right afterwards. We're like, Oh, that, that didn't have the payoff that I thought it would. So she's coveting here, looking for wisdom, looking for happiness, thinking that she's, she doesn't have happiness. Whereas when we think of the the garden story, when we think of Eden, don't you guys, isn't happiness probably one of the many adjectives that you would describe the garden, that it would be a happy place, but she's finding, Oh, this, I just need this one other thing that will make me happy. This is what sin does to us every time. It drops us off at a place we never wanted to go. It's the lie of that you, you partake of this and it's going to take you, uh, it's going to bring you happiness. And it even says that there's pleasure in sin for a moment, for a season, but it's going to leave you, it's going to drop you off at a place that you never planned to go. And this is the wisdom of living under a maker who knows us and who's designed us, who's created us in his image, that he knows what is good and what is hurtful for us. And so when we live under him, that's what we unpacked last week. That's where we find protection is we're living under his reign. Another thing about sin that we can see right off the bat from this is that this sin, her sin didn't just affect her, right? What it says, it says, uh, she also gave her husband with her and he ate. I think a lot of times we view our sin as encompassed to us, um, that it only, this is only affecting me. And so I can, I can struggle with this sin, but it's, a, it's only affecting me. And the things that uh, my sin, although I may, may not be able to trace it back 
specifically, it's affecting my children. It's affecting my wife. It's affecting our neighborhood. It's affecting our community. And we have to have, I think it's healthy for us to have this family mentality, this community mentality as the body of Christ is that we are not in, we are individuals, but we're living a, a life as a corporate body. And so, um, our sin, those things that we pursue, it's not just affecting you, but it's affecting the world around you. And I remember last week I told you guys that I was going to get into this. And this is probably, this will probably be a little bit of a soapbox for me. And, uh, if, if it ruffles your feathers, then you can talk to me afterwards or talk to my wife. She'll actually be able to explain this better than I would. Um, but it drives me nuts. I've heard this. I've heard this taught quite a few times, but, um, Adam wasn't present. Like where was Adam? And I would say the same thing. Where was Adam? But he was there. Where was he as a man? Where was he as the protector? Where was he as the leader? He's there with her. And she took the fruit and ate. She also gave her a husband with her and he ate. It blows my mind. The entire conversation that's going on. And Adam is standing by silently. It blows my mind that he's watching uh, his wife be deceived, be lied to be tricked. And he's not interjecting. He's not defending. Uh, and this is my soapbox part. So prepare yourselves, buckle up. Um, <laughs> it's it. When I studying this, the line that comes to mind that I cannot stand. And I know there's, I'm maybe I'm putting too much weight on this line, but the line I can't stand is happy wife, happy life. And that's the line that I think of when I read this is that, what does it say? It was the fruit was good for food. It was pleasing to the eyes and it was a desirable to make one wise. And I see Adam just hiding behind the line of like, Hey, whatever makes her happy. Like she real this, this is, this fruit's really pretty and she really wants it. And Hey, just, Happy wife, happy life. Keep her happy. And instead of having a backbone and stepping up and saying, hey, this isn't good for you. This isn't good for me. And stepping in and defending her, not letting her have to have this conversation all by herself, but stepping up and defending her. There's so many times. Um, that's why I said my wife can explain this so much better because it's it's a Dan. It's she's the only wife I've ever had. So it's a dynamic that I only know with her. Um, but it's the, there's been many times where we have, um, granted because she, she's such a good helper. It makes it so easy to lead, but I've had to step in and say no, and not in a domineering way. Um, our, our house, which I have probably talked about every week because I've been so anxious to move in, which was awesome on Tuesday we moved in. So I finally have my wife and my kids living with me again. Super rad. So you guys will all have to come over. Um, but to get to a place where we could have that house, there was a lot of things that my wife would maybe want to buy or would want to buy along the way. And I, it, I wasn't just the guy that was domineering, like, no, you can't have this. No, you can't have this. But as we've always talked of our marriage as a team that, Hey, it's you and me taking on the world. We're a team. And so it's, it was always casting vision. It was always like this, 
this doesn't line up with, yeah, you can go, we can, I can go buy you this or we can buy you that, or you can get yourself this, but it doesn't line up with, this is where we're going. This is the vision. This is the long-term goal that we have. Let's be right next to each other side by side and, and running after that goal. Adam has no long-term vision here. He's not looking at all at how this is going to affect his wife long-term, how it's going to affect him long-term, how it's going to affect humanity long-term. All he's thinking about is I want to avoid conflict right now. And I don't want to say anything that's going to keep, that's going to make me the bad guy and having to say no to my wife or, or cast any kind of vision. He's being lazy. He's being spineless. And we will see later in the scripture, he continues in being spineless and being lazy. And so if there's, if, if as men, we read through Genesis and we cast blame on women messed it up. I'm telling you the, the picture of a man in Genesis is nothing to brag about that. Adam was a complete coward and completely spineless. Um, and thank the Lord that he came and came graciously, uh, as we'll unpack, but men be strong, be men. I was talking with my wife today. I don't want to kind of like divulge on what we had to walk through today, but uh, we were driving. We had an hour drive back today. So I wasn't at this morning's service, but that was the comment I made to my wife is like, I said, uh, I really wonder where real men are today. I, and there's a lot of adult men, but more and more, I, I don't see men of character, men of backbone, men who are going to say the hard things, men who are going to stand up and do the hard things. So let's be those men. Amen. Men. Amen. That's a lot of men's in there. Uh, chapter seven. Let's keep going. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and that they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. This is a picture of them losing their innocence. And I use my kids as analogies every week, but this literally is the best analogy is my kids favorite thing to do at night. They always have a time at night for this. This is how much they love it is being naked. And so it's like, kids, you want to be naked? Naked. And then they strip down and you take clothes off of them. And it's like, you just gave them 18 sodas. They go absolutely nuts running around the house naked. And it's, that's the innocence. And I think it was, I don't know if we were at Micah and Molly's house or, it had to have been because we were just, we just moved into our house. We were in mixed company. And I remember Everly ran up to me and she's like, daddy, do you want to be naked with us? And it's like, it's inappropriate. Your dad can't run around, can't run around with you naked, you little kids. But it's, it's appropriate for them, right? We see like a two-year-old and a three-year-old and like Oliver's probably doing the same thing. We see these kids run around naked and it's, it's not odd to us. Why? Because of their innocence. And so this is the thing that's lost here. I don't want us to read into it and, and make it um, sexual in the sense of that we should be ashamed of sex, that sex within a marriage is beautiful. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is they have lost their innocence. And it's also the beginning of uh, notice here. This is before God comes into the garden, right? So immediately as their eyes are opened, it's not that God comes and then it's like, we need to hide from him. Although they do that next, what do they do? They immediately cover themselves. Their innocence is lost and they're covering themselves even from each other. 
They've, they've lost their innocence and it's the beginning of self-protection, self-atoning. It's the same thing we do today as believers is that we are somehow trying to cover our own sin that somehow we're going to make up for this fault that we're going to pay this debt, which we all know we can't do that. That was the, the job that only Christ could do. God come as man paying the price, the insurmountable debt that we had, but it's Adam and Eve, what they're doing, self-protecting, covering themselves up, realizing they no longer have this innocence. Uh, their eyes being open to remember what we unpacked last week, that their eyes are being opened. Um, they were stepping into a realm that they were not equipped to be in. They were stepping into, or they were stepping out from underneath the covering of God underneath from being uh, God being their Lord and they were being their own Lord. And they we as human beings are not equipped to stand in that place. And so as they're, they're standing in that place. Now they're realizing, Oh no, my eyes have been opened. I'm making myself God and I'm ill-equipped for it. They're covering themselves up, trying to atone for their, their own sins. How many of us, when we mess up is, is kind of the next thing, or maybe the next few days, it's like, I need to try a little harder. Maybe I need to do a few more good deeds. Maybe I need to, uh, I don't know. You don't go to midweek service on Wednesday and that week you go to midweek service, whatever it may be. It's this idea of we, this self atoning that I need to pay somehow. Like I can take care of this. Like I messed up and and again, we're these, we're these idol factories. So we get out from underneath the, the Lordship and we're our own Lord. And we realize we panic. Oh no, we shouldn't be out here. And then instead of running back to, to the Lord, we, we try to self-correct because we're ashamed, right? That we try to, I can just, I can fix this in myself. Um, and we, and we, in essence, run, we're running further instead of running towards him. Isn't that what exactly we'll see um, that Adam and Eve do? Uh, verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Um, so the language here with God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, it's the morning and evening and other verses. Uh, it's just, Noon is the heat of the day. What this is also describing is that this is a regular thing. This is a daily occurrence that they are walking with the Lord. So Adam and Eve are fearful. They have lost their innocence. They're, they're covering themselves. And now God, uh, now the silliness ensues. God who's walking in the garden, who they have fellowship with comes. And instead of running to him of Lord, we messed up. They run and hide, which is, I believe what we do the, uh, I think in all of this, we can see really a shadow of ourselves of, of self atoning, of running, of not running to the father, but running from the father, uh, cause of our shame of our sin, feeling condemned. Um, and we'll see the, the goodness of the father as he deals with Adam and Eve. So verse, uh, Oh, eight, which we read. Uh, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. Um, you guys know, you guys been here, Bill Fetter. You guys know the guy that has like a million slides and he flies through it super fast, super smart. He's awesome. So I love, um, he typically ends with this, but I love his analogy of it is that 
we were like two magnets and then one magnet they're they're attracted to each other and then one magnet flipped so that's us as humanity sinning and we flip and no matter how much this magnet representing god still wants to be near us it's we're propelled away our own our own shame is is making us run from the father when what we want to is turn back to him and get connected back with him. That's what's happening to Adam and Eve here. They're running from the very solution, running in shame and banking on, which to us, it's silly. They're banking on fig leaves. They're banking on that to, to fix the problem that if we just cover our nakedness and we hide that we can survive this and the silliness that um, we read here. I think if we were to look back at our own lives, we kind of operate as silly, right? I don't think we can be so prideful as to think we don't operate the same way that we don't run from the very one who can fix the problem and that we don't patch ourselves up with, with good works just for the sake of good works that we can somehow atone for our own sin. Verse nine, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, now listen to these. There's three questions here that God asks in these uh, verses nine, 10, 11. Now listen to these questions. We're going to kind of unpack them and see if you can pick up on the characteristic of God through this. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, this is God speaking. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, does God know the answers to these questions? Yep. Yeah, for sure. What, what do you think he's trying to teach Adam right out of the gate? Confession. He's asking him questions, not coming down, knowing everything. It would make complete sense for God to come down right where they are. God's walking. They hear him. Would it not make sense for him to come right down where they are and say, I know what you did. I saw you eat of the tree. I told you not to eat of the tree. Here's the consequences. See ya. It would make a lot of sense if that happened. But what is he, what is he displaying here that I think it's easy to read past is grace and mercy. He's still just, he didn't lie in what the, the consequences of this sin would be, but he's displaying his nature and that he's not after condemnation. He's after confession and reconciliation, reconciliation by his own effort. He's asking these questions to teach this already in Adam that come to me and tell me, What's going on? We have a relationship. Remember, this is, he's walking in the cool of day. This is something that was a a regular occurrence. Come to me. Tell me these things. Let's talk. Don't run from me. Um, Again, like my kids, it's, it's one thing for me to, I find myself doing it a lot with my three and a half year old because she obviously is comprehending more and more. But I ask her, are you supposed to be doing that? Do you understand what you just did? Do you understand? Repeat back to me what dad just told you to go do. Because I want her to articulate to me that we're having a conversation, that she's not just 
Uh, this is not just a one way, but look, come to me. There's reasons why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. We have a relationship. I want to know that, that we're connecting. I want to know that you're understanding this. This is the, the heart of the father here. And then verse 12, uh, going back to the cowardice. If Adam, <laughs> Adam had an opportunity to redeem himself and he absolutely did not. Then the man said, my bad. I'll take ownership of it. God blame me. Lord, you made me the leader. Put this on me. Nope. Nothing like that. Nothing at all. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate cowardice. If there's anything as again, as men, but I think uh, overarching believers own it. If you have, if you have wronged somebody, if you have messed up the quickest way, I, I'm learning this more and more just as life goes on, but man, the, everything tells you to try to duck and dodge blame and everything tells you to try to just duck and dodge situations to get out of them. But if you know that you've messed up, man, the, the fastest way out of that situation is just owning things, whoever it may be my fault, my bad. That's on me. Put that on me. Um, and especially as, as a husband with my wife and kids, that something, something is awry in my family. The first place I'm looking is in my own life. I don't look at my wife and go, man, I need to figure out what's wrong with her. I don't look at my kids. I need to figure out what's wrong with them. My first thought is as leaders, um, that's a characteristic of leaders across the board is that when things are going wrong, leaders look inwardly. Leaders look at themselves. Leaders go, what have I done that has created this culture that this is now the fruit that we're producing, that we're f- producing fruit of tempers, that we're producing fruit of, of fractions within the group. What have I done? Adam doesn't take that inventory. He immediately points to Eve saying, she, she did it. And then notice Adam definitely was a leader, not a good leader, but Eve follows his lead, right? She doesn't own it. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman replied, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Taking the cue from her husband, taking the cue from her leader. We don't own stuff. We just pass it along. We just, it wasn't me. I got to get out from this. And, and this isn't, from what we unpack, this isn't a condemning, uh, the language in here isn't condemning, right? It doesn't sound like harsh language. Now, granted they're in, they're in the presence of, of God. That's really scary. They've discovered their nakedness, really scary, but they're just, they're just dodging. They're dodging this relationship that they've, they've already had. So verse 14, and then we're going to unpack something. Ooh, I might be able to pull this off. We're going to unpack something kind of fun and we're going to get a little nerdy with it, but I'm into that. So verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now we're not going to really unpack any of that. That's uh, you can unpack that on your own. It's your own study at home. What I want to get to is verse 15, which your theological word for the day is proto evangelium. 
That's this right here. That's referred to in uh, Genesis three fifteen, which we'll read. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, the proto evangelium is, uh, that term is saying it's referring to, this is the first message, the first story of the gospel. So we're going to unpack some stuff, go through this. Um, does everybody here have the new King James version? Are we all reading in a new King James? I'm not condemning. I'm actually curious because I'm going to want to hear some different versions. We'll, we'll unpack it as we go. Um, so the proto evangelium that this is the first picture of what Christ would do on the earth. Right? So how I've mostly heard it taught, which I would assume you would, you've heard it taught as well is that I would put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And so her seed would be, is taught as this is Christ. This is the first picture already. Sin just happened. And now here's, um, the remedy. God is already giving them the plan to, uh, bring redemption. So between your seed and her seed pointing to Christ, you shall bruise or he shall speaking of Jesus is how it's normally taught. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Does anybody have a version that says, um, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yeah. Um, does anybody else have any other version where it's not bruise or crush or mixed in there? No. So we're all probably King James other than that. Thank you for having a different version. Cause that will help us. Um, so as I was saying, it's mostly taught like that. It's correct. This is going to be a weird way around. It's correct, but I think how we get there is incorrect. And so I want to kind of take us a roundabout way uh, and unpack that. And to do that, we have to nerd out a little bit in Hebrew, which I think is fun. So here we go. Um, we're just going to unpack this kind of, kind of word for word, but the major words. So enmity, uh, the definition of enmity is a state of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So there's going to be this war that's happening between these two groups. Okay. So that's the easy one. Enmity between your seed and her seed. So seed here is okay. What's going to be birthed from you. He's talking to the serpent. What's going to be birthed from you. We know that. Remember, we've been trying to look at Genesis through the ancient reader, through the ancient Israelites. So they don't know at this point that the snake, the serpent is Satan. We have the benefit of having the entire canon of scripture. And we know uh, from various verses, one being revelation 20 uh, referring to Satan as that ancient serpent that we know that the serpent is Satan, but they wouldn't know this right off the bat. So that's something you can just put in the back of your mind um, and her seed. So this, it may be how many of your versions where seed is capitalized in your, so between your seed and her seed or after her it's capitalized. Nobody. Oh, there you go. So that seed is, um, well, I'll tell you, it occurs 230 times. So that word it's a uh, zera occurs 230 times with 24 definitions across it. Offspring, seed, descendants, uh, you name it, 24 different definitions, 105 of those times 
of the 230, it's translated as descendants in our scripture that leaves 125 other times. And those are spread out roughly evenly between the 23 other definitions. So it's not this word Zerah is not specific to um, the word itself is not specific to Christ, not pointing to a specific person. The line share of times that the word is used in scripture, it's referring to actually direct descendants. So it, it would be referring to Cain and Abel. It'd be referring to her direct descendants, but it's pointing uh, down the lineage of humanity. So that's the picture where, again, like I said, I, I think the, I don't want to discount the proto evangelium that it's speaking of Christ because is not Christ down the lineage from Adam and Eve. So it's, it's, it's not speaking of him directly, but he's included in that he is born a human being, right? So he still follows the lineage. Um, then he, how many of you, uh, and between your seat and her seat, he shall bruise your head as anybody's he H capitalized in your scripture. Yours is who else? Okay. Just make sure you guys aren't lying to me. Elijah. Okay. So this is who, how you pronounce it. H O O. So it's translated he, she, or it. So there's some translation which will say it. Uh, there's no translation that I know of that says she, um, I think everybody agreed that it wasn't that. So it's either he or it, but again, it's not specific to uh, Christ. There's not anything inherent about the word that's specific to Christ. So as we keep moving on, here's where the difference in the bruise and crush happens. So how many of you have heard it taught like this to where, um, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So pointing to um, that Christ's, Injury is not fatal and his heel was bruised and that's not a fatal wound, but having your head crushed is a fatal wound. So Christ would be, Christ would be wounded on the cross, um, but it's not fatal, but he will crush the head of Satan, which is actually a fatal wound. I've heard it taught like that. Have you guys heard it taught like that? So this word has to be translated the same way. Shuf, which is bruise. It's a really difficult word because it only happens four times in scripture and two of them are in this verse. So the only two other times you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read them to you because even in the two other times, you're kind of like, wow, this definition is broad. And in translating, um, scripture is its own best translator. So when you find words, you look at other places that the word is used and then you help seeing those other words in context helps narrow out, narrow down to the, the usage of that word, what that word really means. Right. That makes sense. So then words that are used a lot, we have a really good understanding of what the author meant, but then likewise words that are used very little and the very few times they're used, they have varying definitions. Then we have to be really careful on how much we build off of that word because it's, we're not super sure. So the two other times, so it happens twice in this verse, bruise and bruise or crush and bruise or whatever you have. Job nine, seven says, how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were, for though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice for he crushes. 
That's that word right there. Shuf. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. So there in earlier, we see that it's bruise. Uh, here we see crush crushes. And then in the only other place it's used is in Psalms, Psalms one thirty nine eleven. Where can I go from your, you guys will recognize this first. Hopefully where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me fall. That's that same word. So surely the darkness shall crush on me, bruise on me, fall. You kind of get the picture here. Uh, Surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. So there's a lack of information here. There's other ones that are um, other translations say it's um, lay in wait. Um, But the thing that the, the safe thing to do here, the safe way to translate is to use the same word because the word is used back to back in Genesis where we're reading to use the same definition we have. So it can be bruise, bruise, crush, crush, whatever it may be. Um, if we stack too much onto this verse, I think it gets shaky, but again, I'm going to, my goal is to get us all the way back around to the same definition that this, this is pointing to Christ doing the, the ultimate work of crushing Satan. But I think if we build it off of that text right there, it's really shaky ground. I think as we read this as a ancient and the ancient Israelite, as the attended audience, it's a lot more intuitive. So what he's saying here is that through your descendants, serpent, through everything that's birthed of you and woman, through humankind, which will be birthed from you, there will be a war. And what do you think of, well, first off, if you're fighting a snake, what, what's going to get hit? Your heel, right? Very intuitive. And also, if you're, if you're talking about a serpent, don't you immediately, you're talking poisonous serpent, poisonous snake. So we already intuitively view the snake's wound as mortal and the crushing of this stepping on the snake's head. So it's, it's, it's a battle, not speaking of who's going to win. It's actually left. I believe the scripture is left open. It's saying that through sin, you have let death into the world. You through sin, you have, and we'll see it as we go through next week, we'll go through the fallout of, of sin, but you have this war that through Satan and humankind, you guys will wage war with each other all the time. And he's going to be biting your heel and you're going to be crushing your head. It's the picture. It's the exact picture we would have if you were fighting a snake with your bare feet. It's he's going to, he's going to tag your heel. There's going to be wounds that, that humanity is going to have because of Satan. And there's going to be times where we are stepping on him, that we're bruising, crushing, whatever it may be, but it's left. I believe through this scripture, it's not, he's not, um, the first definition I think of, of what he's teaching is, is not that, um, Hey, this is the plan. If you're Adam or Eve here, you are not at all aware of, Oh, Jesus. 
as, as again, this is the benefit we have of having the whole canon of scripture, but this original audience does not hear that and immediately go, Oh, he's talking about that. There's going to be somebody who comes from Eve and he's going to kill Satan. They don't even know it's Satan. They don't know any of that yet. But so if your brains are a little bit like, I don't know, let me now try to make this full loop. Turn to Romans sixteen twenty. And this will then tie in. So this um, also, if this were a prophecy, we would also see this being fulfilled in the gospels. There's no mention of the crushing of the snake's head in the gospel. Like I said before, revelation 22 refers to the ancient serpent, um, but there's no reference to uh, Jesus then is fulfilling this prophecy of crushing the serpent's head. But Paul who is fluent in scripture. Listen to how he talks in Romans 16, 20, and I'm going to read from 17. So, uh, is this his letter to the church? Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the to the doctrine, which you learned and avoid them for those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech to deceive the hearts of the simple right there. Your thoughts should be going back to serpent, right? Remember last week, cunning, the, the cunning serpent. So, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So this is the, the Paul then alluding back to, and it's the God of peace. So it's God doing it. But what's the vehicle by which God is crushing Satan? The church he's writing to the church, right? So the church is the vehicle by which God will be crushing the Satan, it, crushing Satan. It's, it's through us. It's through him living through his active church. Uh, I won't go to that verse yet. We hear our, if you're at Sunday morning, we hear our senior pastor talk about it all the time. It's that we, I, I think even this verse backs up what he is saying is that we have diluted the gospel down to raise your hand be saved. Last week we saw salvation here Sunday night, which was awesome. We saw a girl, two girls come that had never been here before. And, and she's saved and she's not here tonight cause she's sick, but she'll be here next week. You can say hi to her. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it doesn't end there. The gospel is that now we are part of this family and now we are part of this work. We are the tangible hands and feet of Christ. We are now remember the creation story of Genesis was the story of a temple that we are now these mobile temples here on the earth that we have a job to do as people. We should not be a people that just go, Jesus be my Lord and savior. And then we sit down, we go sit on the bench, but that what this is telling us here is not we're We're not sitting on the bench, just waiting. Like I got my own salvation and I'm just waiting for the day where Jesus comes and crushes Satan's head completely. And then I'm going to heaven. That's not, the identity that we've been given. That's not the, the marching orders that we've been given in scripture. It's that I have been saved. Now I am 
the representative of Christ, that he indwells in me, the living God indwells in me. And therefore it is my duty. It is my new identity to actually be active and moving in this world. And that it's the Lord is going to make himself known on earth through me, through you, through his church, right? All throughout scripture, we see God moves through what vehicle human beings, over and over to the point where when God wants to redeem, he sends Jesus fully God and fully man. See God's vehicle by which he moves is through men, which is again, our identity that we unpacked in Genesis, that it, our identity didn't change. We just became broken. But as we are then grafted back into the family, we are redeemed. We are justified being sanctified our marching orders are still the same of Genesis to be the representatives on the earth to bring about his will. Does this make sense? So that's what we should be doing. And it's not that we take, uh, I think we shy away from saying that we do the work and for a good reason. I think we shy away because we don't want to take credit for it. And I, I understand that, but I think uh, Colossians one twenty nine says it really well. And this should maybe teach us how we are to respond to work and to good works. Colossians one twenty nine says to this end, I also labor striving according to his work, which works mightily in me. So he's saying that I strive and I labor. So he's not discounting like, Hey, I don't do anything. It's just Jesus. Like, I don't, I don't, I think that's what we default to because we want to be humble and we don't want to take credit. We also understand that it's going to look like work. It's going to look like striving us. Christ living through us is going to feel is going to look is going to sound like hard work, but we know enough. We should know that it's not us. It's not our own, uh, goodwill. It's not how great we are as individuals, but we know that it's Christ who is willing into doing that good work, that it's him, his power that works mightily within me to move me to do these good works, to live. It's because Christ brought me back into right standing with the father. And now he empowers me, gives me the will and empowers me to do the good works that he's set before me. Right? So as we move through, we can be confident in that we don't have to hide from good work, being scared of, oh no, like I'm trying to earn my salvation. But we, we look for hard work. We look for places to be active because that's the Lord working in us to be his tangible hands and feet on this earth. So in closing, I went over, but in closing, what can we learn from this? There's a, there was a lot in here and I'm just going to bullet point it because I think now that we've gone through it, I think we, there's a, a concise picture that has been painted here. Winston Churchill said, all men make mistakes, but only wise men learn from their mistakes. So there's a lot of mistakes made in the garden, right? Especially this chapter, we're in chapter three, it's the fall and the curse and, and everything. There's a lot of mistakes being made. So it's a good opportunity for us to learn from these mistakes. So one, sin always takes you places you never intended to go. So know that as you pursue that sin, that that's not going to ultimately give you the thing that you think you need. And that's not ultimately going to give you happiness. And, and any time where you believe or start to believe the lie that God is a cruel taskmaster, remember he's a loving father and your happiness lies in him, not in stepping outside of him to find the one thing that you can't have. Sin is always going to leave you and take you places you never intended to go Two. 
when we do sin, self-atoning, self-protection is not only silly, but it's useless. That there's nothing that we can do. We are helpless in this. We have a, we had an insurmountable debt that we could not pay. The one thing that we need to do is run back to the father, which is our third thing. We confess our sins and own it knowing that we have a loving father and a savior, Jesus, who has stood in our place. Remember that when we do sin, when we do fall for that mistake, when we do fall for that lie and the deception, that there's something outside of, of God's covering that is going to bring us happiness, that we don't self atone. And we also don't run, but we run back to a father and we remember that he is a loving providing father and he's not a cruel taskmaster. Number four Now that we are counted as righteous, we do not simply wait for Jesus to come and do the work, but we recognize that he is doing the work through us. And this is what we get from uh, this last verse is that through the church in that proto evangelium through the church, Jesus is going to crush Satan forever. And it gives us, it it ends, uh, although that's not where it ends, Verse 15 then goes into, then uh, he curses the serpent. He cursed the curses. He gives the uh, consequences of sin to the serpent, gives the consequences of sin to Eve and gives the consequences of sin to Adam. So we'll unpack that more. But what it leaves us with is that we are not a people that as we've been saved and reconciled through Jesus, we're not a people who then sit on the sidelines and wait for Jesus to do the work outside in some miraculous thing that, Oh, there's going to be a revival and that the church is sitting on the sidelines waiting for just something to happen out in the atmosphere. That's not how it works. God works through his people. And so as he said this, that through there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed and that you guys are going to have this war. But ultimately we see then in Romans, Paul saying that, Hey, Christ through the church is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush Satan. And that should give us hope. And we know this, we know that's the beauty of scripture is that again, we get to see the whole picture. We know revelation. We know how it turns out. So we shouldn't be fearful of being active because we know what the end result is. We shouldn't be fearful of engaging and, and being the hands and feet and, and getting into whatever avenue that we've been gifted, been gifted in to affect it for Christ's kingdom. But we should be emboldened because we know how it turns out. Sure. We'll encounter hard times. Sure. We're going to encounter um, persecution. Sure. It's, it's not going to be easy, but we know how it's going to end up. Amen. So this is us being active. So we're going to go into a, a few minutes of, well, hopefully, That makes sense to you guys learn from, learn from Adam and Eve here, learn from the, the folly that we've seen, learn from the missteps of once we fall into sin, what's happening and also learn that we have a role as the church, that we have a major role as the church, that we have a role as these living, active, mobile temples, that the Lord is living in us, not to be dormant, but to be active and to be world changers through us.